Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, is AI and litigation ready for prime time? The City Bar's Working Group on Judicial Administration and Artificial Intelligence is back to get into a recent headline-making case of AI misused in the courtroom. Harut Manassian, Stuart Levy, Richard Hong, and David Zaslowski say that AI may already have usable applications in the law. Is it ready for prime time? Some of it is. But again, understanding what it is and knowing what tool it is for you and having it as a tool in your toolkit, there's stuff that already could be done now that's really great. But the group has a warning for practitioners who want to dive in head first. The problem that some people are making is that everyone's assuming that AI models are all now the leading expert. And obviously that's very misplaced. And whether or not AI is ready for prime time today, it's getting ready for the spotlight. When that time comes, it will be the game changer that is going to really change our practice. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Harut Manassian. Hello, my name is Harut Manassian. I'm chair of the New York City Bar Association's Working Group on Judicial Administration and Artificial Intelligence, a member of the City Bar's Council on Judicial Administration and a, a judicial law clerk joined by three working group members to discuss whether AI is truly ready to be used by lawyers. We'll discuss that question, including through the lens of a recent federal criminal case. A background, the working group is a joint committee between the City Bar's Council on Judicial Administration and the City Bar's Task Force on Digital Technologies. This group is preparing a report to policymakers with specific recommendations on addressing AI use within the judiciary. Thanks to Jerome Walker, co-chair of the Task Force on Digital Technologies, and a partner at Jerome Walker PLLC, before we continue, an important disclaimer, no one here represents the views of the judiciary, state or federal. I'm joined today by Richard Hong, partner at Morrison Cohen, former federal prosecutor, a member of the Council on Judicial Administration, and chair of the City Bar's Federal Courts Committee. I'm also joined by Stu Levy, partner at Skadden and the firm's IP and tech department, a member of the firm's AI practice, and a member of the Task Force on Digital Technologies. And I'm also joined by David Zaslowski, partner at Baker McKenzie in New York, where he specializes in international litigation and arbitration with a focus on technology disputes. David is also a member of the Task Force on Digital Technologies. Two weeks ago, a motion for a new trial was filed in the case United States versus Mitchell. AI was brought up in that motion. David, can you explain to us what happened in that case? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Harut. So let's, let's start the podcast with a quick introduction to that case. It's got a lot of tension over the past few weeks. It's not a podcast on the Michelle case, but we started because that really was the impetus for today's program. So in a nutshell... In that case, DOJ got a conviction against former Fuji's rapper Prosper Shell for illegally funneling money from a fugitive Malaysian billionaire Joe Lowe into former President Barack Obama's 2012 election campaign and also for lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of, of China. And Michelle recently moved for a new trial based on an argument of ineffective assistance of counsel. The allegation is that his lawyers outsourced trial preparations, things like drafting the briefs and cross-examination and opening statements. It was outsourced to inexperienced contract attorneys who really were working for an e-discovery vendor. 
But the argument that's really of interest to us today is that the defense lawyer's use of generative AI during the trial. And I'm just going to quote briefly from the brief because it sets the stage. So I'm now quoting. The lawyer used an experimental artificial intelligence program called iLevel AI to draft the closing argument, ignoring the best arguments and conflating the charged themes. And he then publicly boasted that the AI program turned hours or days of legal work into seconds. It is now apparent that this lawyer and his co-counsel appear to have had an undisclosed financial stake in the AI program, and they experimented with it during Michelle's trial so that they could issue a press release afterward promoting the program, a clear conflict of interest. The AI company touted it as first use of generative AI in a federal trial, and it showed. The lawyer's closing argument made frivolous arguments, misapprehended the required elements, conflated the schemes, and ignored critical weaknesses in the government's case. The closing was damaging to the defense. So close quote, that's from the motion. Now, the argument on the other side is that the AI program was just used as a tool to allow the lawyers to do some real-time research of the trial record. It suggested ideas to defense counsel, but it was the lawyers who wound up writing the closing, and there was no ineffective assistance of counsel. So that sort of sets the stage for today's discussion, right? Is AI ready for prime time? Does using it affect uh, standard and effective assistance of counsel? Where does that leave us in terms of should you be using it? Or maybe on the other side, shouldn't be using it. So with that context, Taru, let me turn it back to you. Thanks, David. Richard, you were a federal prosecutor. Is this ineffective assistance of counsel claim likely to succeed? I'm not sure, but it's a very interesting novel claim made. And as far as I can tell, no one so far used generative AI in this fashion and made a point of it in context of any ineffective assistance of counsel. But before I talk about this case, just a little bit of background, what effective assistance of counsel claim means, providing a little bit of the law here. So the question is, did the counsel, the trial counsel here, make a minimum level of effectiveness. And the motion is made by new counsel, by the way, not the person who is alleged to be involved with all these issues. So the effective, providing effective assistance to counsel is a Sixth Amendment right. It's, it can be brought in direct appeal, meaning like here, uh, in, in a form of motion for a new trial or some other post-trial motion, or it could be brought collaterally, meaning it could be brought in a habeas corpus type of situation situation where after all the direct appeal is exhausted. The standard that everyone applies is the Supreme Court standard from 1984, Strickland versus Washington case. And basically it sets out the standards that, that the defendant here through a new counsel has to establish. First is the objective standard of reasonableness, whether the counsel's conduct fell below that of what is a reasonable professional standards. And this is a highly deferential standard that the court applies. What does that mean? That means that the court says that there is not one way of uh, providing uh, effective uh, counsel at trial, in a criminal trial. There are lots of ways of doing it, and they look at it uh, through the lens of uh, what is reasonable within the heartland of what is called reasonable. The second thing that the Strickland case talks about is a reasonable probability 
that but, but for the counsel's unprofessional errors, the outcome, the criminal proceeding that is, would have been different. And this is, a, again, a burden that the defendant has to carry. And it's a very difficult burden because now you're saying that whatever the counsel may have done wrong affected the outcome of that. Now, from my experience, the, the Strickland standard, especially the prejudice standard, which is the second part, is very difficult to overcome. There are many motions about ineffective assistance. Counsel claim very few succeed. Here, in this case, the main arguments are two-pronged relating to the closings. One is essentially that the counsel had an undisclosed conflict of interest. There are plenty of cases where the courts have actually found ineffective assistance of counsel situations when you have an undisclosed conflict. So here, it is a colorable issue that the new counsel has raised. The second thing that is interesting is whether or not to the extent that the counsel using the generative AI um, technology came up with a story that was inconsistent with the trial strategy, particularly relating to how the scheme worked. In the brief, there's a discussion about whether or not there were any admissions made at the closing. And that's a critical question because, again, courts have looked at whether or not when if one can make a sort of admissions about the guilt at closing and whether or not that was done with the consent of the client, which is required, and how that was preceded. So the counsel in this case have actually raised colorable issues for, for the Strickland analysis. Now, turning to what I think about AI, for one thing, as news accounts show that people have denied Folks who actually ran the program, worked with the, the former trial counsel, have said basically that, no, they didn't do anything wrong, that it wasn't all AI, generative AI. It was only just the start. It was just the tool only. So there's some factual discrepancies, and I believe the court's going to have an evidentiary hearing to sort all these things out. And obviously, that's going to be dispositive of what comes out at, at, in evidence uh, during the hearing. But... From the perspective of AI, this is a very interesting argument of to what extent you can use AI, whether or not using generative AI at this point is acceptable in closings and how it should proceed. We have done a prior podcast about the Mata case in Southern District, and it reminds me that this goes into the same kind of issue of knowing the product, knowing the technology, understanding the reliability, understanding the limits of it, and acting accordingly. If it turns out that these guys were essentially promoting their own product by using a technology that really wasn't ready for prime time, I think that the judge may look at this with a view that there may be a colorable Sixth Amendment violation here. We'll see what happens at the hearing, but this is a very interesting issue about to what extent one can use generative AI at a criminal trial particularly in closing arguments, and the court's ruling should provide some level of guidance beyond the general wisdom that we now have that obviously we should be careful, we should check everything and make sure that it is in fact what your client wants you to say at closing. It's a fascinating situation and the issues that you raised, Richard, are uh, we're going to discuss them shortly. As Richard noted, there is a hearing scheduled in this case. It's currently scheduled for uh, December, late December. 
Stu, you're at the crossroads of AI and private practice. How should lawyers manage their AI use with their clients? So I, I just wanted to actually talk a little bit more about, about this point in, in this case. I think it, it's another example where potentially bad, unfortunate facts are going to maybe bad lawyering or really bad lawyering are going to potentially make bad law. Because if everything that was um, said here or alleged here is true, it, it's not really a good test case for this issue. And what I mean by that is that would be more interesting, and I can imagine happening in the future, and this will be a much more interesting case, is where the lawyer used AI to augment what they were doing, to augment their draft of a closing, to augment their coming up with an approach or arguments. A lawyer types in what arguments would be best in a case like this, and what seems here is then whatever AI says, that's what the lawyer is going to do. That to me is not that interesting a case because shame on you for having done that. No matter how sophisticated the AI is, I think we're a good amount of time before you can just rely on that without exception. And the more interesting case was imagine the facts were a little bit different and Kenner is a lawyer here accused of basically using his own invested in AI product to generate a closing and then bragging about it, you know, had it wasn't, didn't do that, but it used AI to come up with maybe one of the arguments that was made to come up with some of the language in the way they phrased it more than just a few words here and there, but dramatically less than write my closing for me. It'd be, I think, a really interesting case of whether where that line is and how you draw it. And is there an argument that maybe you were influenced by AI? Like here, I'll give you another interesting fact pattern I can see happening, which is you ask an AI model for some good arguments. It tells, it asks, it gives you the best argument or you ask for the best argument. You then go off and research that on your own and use that. You can still see defendant or someone arguing that you did not, you were too influenced by AI. You didn't sure you use some human authorship or some human thought. There's some human involvement, but you're basically just checking the AI's work and you were very influenced by that. I can foresee as we're in this gray area where AI is good enough to use as an augmentation device, not so good that you can just trust it wholeheartedly, but people start using it as an augmentation device. I can see a lot of really interesting line drawing lawsuits as to at what point did you use it too much? At what point were you influenced by it improperly? I think those would be really fascinating arguments. I wish this was a better test case of that. Again, if the facts are as alleged, it, it's not a great story, but it's not a good test of the use of AI in a real meaningful way. Again, as Richard and David have been saying, it sounds like more this guy wanted to push his product, if this is true, than, than actually enhance his legal work. Whether that's true or not, we'll see. That would be a shame if that was true. But still, could I comment on that just to, to, yeah. two levels? First, in terms of the ineffective assistance of counsel and the way Richard described the standard before, right, the standard is not that high. And I guess Richard may answer right afterwards. So if it was used to the level that you said to give you some good arguments, 
but maybe not the best arguments that a really top lawyer could find, that would seem to to satisfy the standard. So that that's at one level. And then the other level is, yeah, you, when is it going to be good enough? And what, what I keep thinking about AI and what we're doing, you compare it to things that happened in the past. So you and I were both around, I think, in the relatively early days, Lexus. Yeah. I don't remember having conversations about like, when is Lexus good enough? It was just a combination of you, you, you use Lexus, but you still use the books and it just all came together. So this is of a different degree for sure, but should it really be that different? It, so can I jump in? I, I agree with you, David. I don't know if it should be any different. I actually had a conversation with a federal judge uh, recently about this issue, and he raised the same point that David is making is that are we any different than X number of years ago when Westlaw and Lexus was coming to fore and people were using it and so forth. So I think that's an interesting question. One point I want to make on Stu's comments, it's my understanding that the, the, uh, the uh, Mr. Kenner is making the argument that Stu was saying that's more interesting, that in fact, it was nothing more than a research tool, that it was not used in host scale, and that it was a process to pick out the best arguments for his closing, and that it was not a verbatim or anything close to that. So they are making the argument that Stuart is making that's going to be interesting. So the hearing should reveal whether or not how all that falls falls in place and how the judge reacts to that. I just want to make that two points. I just wanted to add a, a question. Do you, any of you see a meaningful difference right now between a lawyer consulting with a fellow partner at a law firm and a lawyer consulting an AI tool like this? I think it goes back to the way the comment about, sorry, made the comment about the, the Mata case. The Mata case was just bad lawyering. And yeah, that unfortunately, I don't, unfortunately, unfortunately, that, that became. You know, the subject of so much discussion about AI. It wasn't an AI case. It was a bad lawyering case. So I, I my, my answer to what you said is, yeah, a, AI does some wonderful stuff already today. I've, I've heard lawyers talk about how they, they've taken appellate briefs and, and an appellate record and put it into an, an AI program, not ChatGPT, but proprietary AI programs, and, and said, you know, generate questions that, that uh, the panel is going to ask Right, that is a much easier way and a much more cost-effective way to do a moot than the way some of us do moot arguments. It's like everything else. If you understand the product and you and it's just a tool in a toolkit, and you use that properly with other tools, then yeah, I have to go back to our original question: Is it ready for prime time? Some of it is, but again, understanding what it is and knowing what what tool it is for you and having it as a tool in your toolkit, there's stuff that already could be done now. That's really great stuff. Or if I may, if I wonder to what extent it, th these two cases that we've been talking about is more of a function of busy lawyer and maybe uh, not so careful lawyers who find this generative AI technology so useful because it is ready made. It's written and sometimes written very well that can be used and whether or not that is a, you know, that is function of what's going on here. 
sloppiness and laziness, unfortunately, or as Stu said, bad lawyering. When you read some of the exhibits that were attached, it makes it seem like they're much more interested in saying, we were the first to do this. And he's showing a press release about the use of AI, having a financial interest in the product that you used. Really, I don't know, really, you know, again, we'll see, but it, it's not a great fact. Harun, to your, you know, your question about going down the fall, but I think it's like with everything, it's one of these, it depends. It's the difference, I think, between going down if you're doing, I don't know, some securities law case and finding the senior partner who's been practicing securities law for 20, 30 years and asking them and their experience, what have they seen? What do they know? And getting some advice from them. You probably still obviously should check that work. But between that and going to someone using the other extreme, who's not even a securities litigator and asking them and them saying, not really my area. Here's how I think it might come out. Maybe they're entirely wrong. That, that whole, the judgment piece, I think applies there as well. The problem that some people are making is that everyone's assuming that AI models are all now the leading expert. And obviously that's very misplaced. If you look at it as no different or or just a drop different from stopping with someone on the street and asking them what they think, maybe a few rungs above that, but not a ton, you can start to see the, how the analogies might be drawn. But still, I think what what you said is right, but I think we're also not giving the technology enough credit, right? So you go down the hall and you talk to your subject matter expert who you know has been doing this for 30 years. And that's the guy, that's the woman who's recognized in in, in this field. And that's great. But when you walk down the hall and there's there's an AI bot in, in that room, the reason AI is so powerful is because just its ability to analyze these huge data sets and reach conclusions that we can't intuit as people. And that's the power of it. So yeah, absolutely, especially at this early stage. And it's so funny as we're talking about this in six months from now or a year from now, we'll listen to this and probably be laughing at ourselves. But it, 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 as a Going back to what I said before, as a tool in a toolkit and recognizing that this technology can do things that the human mind can't, I think we are at the point where it can give us something, at least a starting point. And then it's up to us as good lawyers to to use the tool properly. But that's what we do when we have associates do our research for us as well. So maybe look at it that way. Instead of saying, I'm talking to my expert partner down the hall, this is what the associate's going to give me, but better because of the ability. Of- and let me ask you this question, Stu, just to follow up on what David said. Let's change the effects a little bit. Let's say you, you go uh, down the hall to talk to a subject matter expert and you use the word security. So let's stay with security, securities law. Someone who's had 30 years of experience and knows is considered a recognized expert. And then you have an AI source that actually read all the major treatises and securities laws and has looked at all the securities cases in the last 30 years. At least that's what they are telling you that this specific AI, generative AI has, has looked at it as sourced. What would you think? At that point, would you go with the live expert or would you go with the generative AI that, they, that the folks have said, yes, they, this machine has looked at everything under the federal securities laws for the last 30 years. 
So I, I think what you would probably do, and again, as we keep saying, we're a little bit in this gray area period, you'll be in for a while. I would think you would go back to the person or fictional person down the hall and say, I ran a QZA model and how about these couple of cases? And you can imagine that securities lawyer saying anything from, I forgot about, good point, forgot about those, to interesting, never heard of that, maybe you should go check that out, to, oh, that's just wrong. The Delaware Delaware Supreme Court went against that the year later, or they're splitting the circuits, or yes, but that, I thought of that case, but here's why it doesn't apply here, because there's a nuance there. You'd, you'd still think you would do that and not just assume the person you trust is the expert, is wrong. You'd still go back and, and look at it yourself, I think. But that's probably no different than how we use Westlaw or Lexus right now, right? Or other technology. Whoever's researching, whether it's associate or partner researching, we do a first round of it and then we try to evaluate the arguments and then we talk to, if we are able to, talk to the so-called experts and doing mm -hmm. right? But no, I, I disagree because here's why. And this is the issue when we always say this clients, AI is not a search engine. It's not a like super sophisticated search engine. And it looks like it is. It really looks like it is, but it really isn't. So when you're using Lexus Westlaw, you're doing your own it's search. You're doing your own search and you're putting in search prompts. And I don't know, maybe there's a glitch somewhere and it didn't pick something up, but that shouldn't happen. But at the end of the day, it's a search engine. AI, even though it looks like that, is not a search engine. It's not like thinking. They actually were thinking, it's not like it's processes. Let me go first search to see if there are cases like this. And if not, then I'll generate something. It just generates right out of the gate. It's not doing any searching. And I think that's really maybe the fundamental difference, not to look at it as a search tool. So efficiency is an animating value behind these AI issues, it seems. Richard mentioned how the lawyer in this case maybe lacked enough time. David mentioned the speed with which AI generates results compared to humans. Are we reaching a point where the non-use of AI in legal practice is grounds for professional misconduct? No, I don't think we're, we're there yet. That's the flip side. Um, is it ready for prime time? And no, I, I don't think we're at that point. I think I may believe more so than Stu that it can do more right now. And I'm not talking about ChatGPT. I'm talking about proprietary products for the legal industry that, that are getting better. And yeah, the, the other side of that tipping point, it may come quicker than we think. Yeah, right. right? So it's November. So it's now a year since yeah, we, we all were introduced to ChatGPT for the, for the first time. And a lot's happened. In, in a year. The advances in a year are unbelievable. I use it, not so much to me, not from writing briefs and stuff, but during the course of the day, I now find myself using it a couple of times a day. And again, understanding its limitations, but it's a powerful tool. So the answer to your question is no, we're not there yet, but I think it may be coming, it may come sooner than we think. I agree with David uh, on that. And Stu, I don't know, maybe, I, but I do think that let, let's look at a, a criminal matter since we've, we've been focusing on, the, on this particular case. The, in criminal discovery, the government has a huge advantage in federal criminal cases. They, they have investigated the matter. They had 
basically subpoena power to get all the documents, all the things ready. And as a defense counsel, you come in pretty late. You got a speedy trial act. You got X number of days to get ready. The judge may not want to give you the continuance you need. You got to review a terabyte of documents that a lot of U.S. attorney's office now uh, turn over in complex white collar cases. What do you do there? Let's say you're not scatting arts of the world. Uh, sorry, David, but that you have all the resources uh, of the world to look at all the discovery. I think at that point, you've got to make a decision and say, hey, I need to use this technology to help me. Now, is it today? I, I tend to agree with David that it's not today, but I think at a certain point, you've got to use this. Otherwise, you will be, and quite frankly, malpractice not to use it. I don't know where that point is. It may not be today, but it's coming up pretty soon, I think. Yeah, I think what's interesting uh, about what we're, we're talking about and this is the unfortunate thing, just the way ethical rules evolve and just law in general evolves, is we might only know we've hit that line when there's a lawsuit over that issue. I think it'll be hard for all law firms to feel their way through the word of malpractice of not using this. I think it's going to be really hard to figure out where that line is. And as I said, I think, unfortunately, the nature of the way the, you know things work There'll be some lawsuit about it, and it's going to wake everybody up to this. Maybe we've hit that reality. Or I don't know if the ABA would come out pronounce and I doubt it on something like this, but maybe. But it's going to be it's going to be tough going for a while to know where that line is. How do you manage discussing the use of AI with your respective clients? Do you think that there should be some structured way in approaching clients about it? Do you think clients should even know that? Counsel are using AI for their legal representation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> again, it depends, right? How how are you how are you using? It? I I don't think there should be any blanket rule. You cannot use AI unless you tell your client that you're using AI. Reality, of course, we don't have to talk about that. We all know those requirements. But you know, there is also in the, in the ABA minor rule something about being about being technologically compliant and technologically up to date. And so if the technology is at the point where you should be using AI in, in some way, then go ahead and do it. I don't think you have to discuss that with your client. If you're using it in a major way in your case, I, 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 I try to look at this thing. How different is it from everything else? And if it's something important to the case, discuss it with your client. If you're using it in a minor way, then is, does it really matter? That's, that's my bent on it. If I, if I try to keep it the same way, the same thing as other new technology, recognizing that it's, it's of a different ilk, that's my mindset. Yeah. It's interesting, Dave, going back to something you said earlier, and I don't remember this at all. I don't know if you do. When Lexus, and then I mean, Lexus came out first, maybe, and then Westlaw, I, I don't remember if firms told their clients, just so you know, we're not sending associates into the library to flip through books. We've got this computer program we've licensed in, um, and we're going to be using that. I, I, just, I don't remember. I started practicing in 1984, and, and for the most part, it was with books, the digests. And I would open them up and say, which by say, what are they talking about? But, um, Yellow ship. And, so, and, and then lectures, you know, I think we had two terminals in, in, in the library. We had two lectures terminals, and she started using them more, but. I don't remember those kinds of conversations telling the client, oh, we're doing yeah. Lexus for the, your research on this case. 
I tend to agree with David that it depends. It's facts and circumstances. If you're relying mm. in substantial part for AI for doing what you're doing, and I go back to the criminal discovery where you're looking at terabytes of documents, I think you ought to tell your client, hey, I got terabytes of documents. We don't have the resources. We need to look through it. We've got a what we believe to be reliable AI technology. We're going to use that. On the other hand, if it's as David said, it's a relatively minor point, minor thing. I, I don't think it matters. Title of this program is concerns whether AI is ready for prime time. So I leave with this question from each of you. Is AI ready for prime time? I think it depends in, in how you're in how you're using it. I, I do think that going through a million documents and um and using AI in, in connection with your or the doc reduction reviewing documents, I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's a lot closer on the horizon. I think that using AI to do summaries of your own internal memos or emails or things like that, I think we're either there or on the real cusp of being there. I think, again, once you get past that in terms of legal strategy and what arguments work best in front of this judge, anything like that, probably wholesale drafting of things as opposed to a sentence here and a sentence there. I think not ready for prime time yet. And then there, I don't know how long off we are. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything that different. I think the answer is yes, to some degree. And to go back to what I said you know, before, the tool of using AI basically to do a moot court of an appellant argument, I, I haven't tried it myself, but from what people have told me who have used it, it's there. Uh, that's great technology because not everyone could put together a, you know, a moot court. That, that's an expensive thing to do it the right way. So to be able to have technology do that, it's, it's, it's there for some things. It's there a lot more than it was six months ago. And six months from now, it, it'll be exponentially better, probably. Yeah, I agree with both uh, Stu and David on this. But when that time comes, it will be the game changer that is going to change our practice. And I understand that law students are learning about AI stuff. So it's just, they'll be learned and they'll be comfortable with it more than I would be. But I probably am a little closer to David's view about where things are, especially the proprietary things that law firms and other companies have looked at. I think it's getting pretty close. Richard, Stu, David, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for your perspective. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more podcasts and information from our team. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org slash podcasts. Be sure to check out This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. And don't miss Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.